Hello and welcome to Long Story Short, the podcast from Arcadis UK, where we focus on the recovery and revival of our cities. I'm Emma Nelson, and today, two legs and two wheels. Do we have a golden opportunity to radically reshape the way we travel around our cities? We'll hear from people who are remapping our routes and changing our behaviour when it comes to getting from A to B. The bike alone doesn't replace the private automobile and neither does public transit. But when you combine the two, that's when the magic happens. You know, think about getting people out of their cars and if we're just saying, to them, we just stop it, just stop driving with you? Uh, you know, it's actually very unlikely to work on its own. We'll also get inspiration from Barcelona and Rotterdam, cities which are successfully reclaiming their streets from the car. That's all ahead on Long Story Short, the Future Cities podcast from Arcadis UK. And a very warm welcome to the show. When the pandemic struck earlier this year, many of our cities fell silent. The government's stay-at-home instructions emptied the streets of cars, removed the rush hour, and for the first time in a generation, city dwellers said the hum of traffic was replaced by birdsong. Well, that silence was in part the dreadful result of people losing their jobs or being told to stay at home. But there were few people who argued for a return to the pollution, the noise and the jams post-pandemic. A recent government report suggests that two out of three people in England support the idea of replacing their roads with cycle lanes and pedestrian pathways. And a survey carried out by YouGov for Arcadis in a report called Our Shared Recovery, looking at the way communities rebuild post-pandemic, suggests nine out of ten people want their local authorities to act to address climate change. Well, the government says it's determined to follow up on these wishes and to promote what's known as active travel. So to talk about what the pandemic revealed about our desires and the potential in all this, I'm joined by... Kerry Stewart, I'm an Associate Director at Arcadis. My role is to help clients to introduce walking and cycling projects to their towns and cities. My name is Samantha Thurwell, I'm an Associate Director at Arcadis. My role is to help design and audit cycling walking schemes for local authorities. And I'm Richard Dilks, I'm Chief Executive of Collaborative Mobility UK. We are a charity, we're for the public benefit of shared transport such as car, bike and e-scooter sharing schemes. Welcome all three of you to Long Story Short. Let's begin, Kerry, with you. Um, The expression active travel is banded about quite a lot in urbanism discussions, but what exactly is it? It's simply walking and cycling and wheeling as well now as we see future mobility type options like e-scooters and other scooters. So effectively allowing our pedestrians and cyclists to use our streets more effectively. Um, Tell me a little bit more, Samantha, about where we were before the pandemic struck. There was a lot of goodwill to make our cities more walkable and cyclable. But what was actually being done? Before we had increases in congestion, within our streets and obviously it was realised that we needed to make a a real impact and a change. Following the 2012 Olympics there was an emphasis of greater cycling in the cities, particularly in London, and the government has put money towards initiatives to increase walking and cycling uh, within our towns and cities and throughout England to improve active travel. Richard, give me an example of the kind of shared transport projects that you were involved in and and, and what they were doing and how successful they were before the pandemic struck. 
Yes, so there's a range of them. Uh, in the car space, you have car clubs, which are the longest established form of it. Then there are bike share schemes, uh, which can be docked or dockless. Uh, and then most recently, the government has temporarily and in some places only legalised electric kick scooters. So there are rental schemes for those uh, popping up in a number of places across England. Where have you seen this work well? I mean, some would say that the United Kingdom has lagged a little with this. So basically in uh, countries like Germany, they've had programmes for a number of years. And I think it is really important that these programmes are stuck with. It's something that Britain has started with and now the test is, do we stick with it? You've got to stick with these programmes to boost walking and cycling. And the more you do that and the more you restrain private car use, uh, the better for shared transport, roughly speaking. And it's just they've been at that for quite a long time. Kerry, you deal with the psychological aspect of getting people on their feet and on their bicycles when it comes to moving across a city. Where are the pinch points? When is it that someone says, no, I'd rather go in my car, please? I think a lot of that's to do with with feeling safe on the roads as a cyclist or a pedestrian. And the the new funding that's coming forward um, should help to address some of those concerns around being on the same in the same road space as a car. So if you have a proper separate lane for cyclists, so then I think you'll find that people feel more comfortable. Women and children particularly are they're less likely to cycle on the roads with cars. So I think those are the kind of key areas where segregation from car traffic can really assist people in actually taking steps to cycle more. Kerry, there was a recent survey in a report by Arcadis UK that was called Our Shared Recovery, and it showed that 95% of people want their local council to do something about climate change. What role does active travel play in all this? Well, I think it it has the potential to make a huge difference to our environment, not only in terms of air quality and noise, but also just a general feeling of well-being in the, in the local community and it doesn't surprise me that that was the result of the survey um, I think people genuinely want things to happen they genuinely want to see more infrastructure put in place more cycle routes better public realm better pavements I think it's really about providing that for them and, and then also kind of incentivizing them to use that so implementing those complementary initiatives alongside the infrastructure can make a real big difference to the way that people perceive active travel and then they start to think differently about their local environments and actually see uh, walking and cycling as the way they want to travel. And tell me a little bit more about how some people are doing this really well. There's a scheme in the Netherlands, isn't there, called Spitsmeiden? What the the Dutch government has done is they have incentivised drivers to drive outside of peak times actually actual financial incentives just to reduce that level of congestion and uh, obviously that will have a big impact also on air quality so it's something that the UK could certainly look at doing as well. Richard we've seen how other countries have made active travel walking and cycling work where have we seen this behaviour change for the better in other walks of life? If you look at what's actually happened with indoor smoking rates in particular and smoking rates in general, basically it has all happened. And I just think we, we might do well to think about how has it happened. And it, it, it's been a real you know, mixture from what I can see of carrots and sticks. So there's some things have been banned, obviously. Uh, yes, the price uh, has been seized on. 
I think in the end, with trying to get behaviour change in transport, we're going to have to look at price. Uh, if you want behaviour change in other sectors, you'd be mad to exclude price, wouldn't you? So why do we think we can do it here? Comms, all those horrible pictures of diseased lungs and so on on, on cigarette packets, etc. Uh, and also providing alternatives to the rise of, um, of vaping, uh, electric cigarettes, etc. In my case, that's sort of where the shared transport side of things comes in, you know, where we have these alternatives that we need that aren't just the private car, not letting it dominate our spaces. So I think there's there's probably something to learn from there. And in that behaviour change, it's been learned that uh, going cold turkey, uh, so just sort of trying to encourage people to just stop it, will you, with smoking, uh, is very unlikely to be effective. That's got efficacy rates well below lots of other interventions. So again, I think maybe not so surprising if we look across to, you know, thinking about getting people out of their cars and if we're just saying, so we just stop it, just stop driving, will you? Uh, you know, that's actually very unlikely to work on its own. You're listening to Long Story Short, the Future Cities podcast by Arcadis UK. Let's hear now from Mark Schenk from Arcadis in the Netherlands. He's a senior mobility expert and he puts a compelling case now for British cities to be more ambitious when it comes to the bicycle. And it stems from people wanting to live better and healthier lives. When talking about cycling in the Netherlands, I often hear that would never work here. Our cities are different. I would always say, well, every Dutch city is different. Rotterdam, for example, was completely destroyed during the Second World War and rebuilt in this post-war cities around the automobile, where people would live outside the city, commute by car into the city every day, and everyone would have more light and space and air in the suburbs. But it didn't take long for the Rotterdammers to realize this wasn't the future they wanted. The spaces they were building were inhospitable to walking and cycling and public transit. Cycling rates were plummeting and there were more road fatalities. So not just in Rotterdam, but in the cities across the Netherlands in the 1970s, there was a real rejection of this car-centric urban planning. Some of them resisted better than others. In Rotterdam, they managed to reverse this tide and retrofit some of these spaces for other modes of transportation. But certainly a lot of cities made mistakes. In Utrecht, they paved over canals. In Amsterdam, they came just a single city council vote away from demolishing the Jewish quarter of their city to build a four-lane motorway. So our status as a cycling nation wasn't always a given. It took a lot of hard work, a certain degree of stubbornness and forward-thinking politicians to get where we are. And even then, you know, the margins were really tight, really tight. Kerry, just listening to that, there's there's a sense that... Um Good design and good ideas generally come out of a very, very long and hard-fought battle when actually people are quite prepared to get it wrong and realise their mistakes. When you talk about reclaiming the streets and making it more active for people who are walking and who are on a bike, do people often think, well, this is this is actually a threat to get rid of cars completely? Because at this precise moment, none of us are thinking that we should get rid of the car simply because the car is, to many people, the only safe place to be travelling where you're not at risk of contracting COVID. Mm. Well, there will be some people who, who feel that way, but then there are many others who don't. We've just started working with a local authority, Angus Council, in Scotland on a, a really exciting project in our growth where there is a dual carriageway that cuts through the town and really 
separates the two sides of the town and, and one side of the town is right on the coast it's a lo- it's got a lovely little harbour and it's really pretty and the road really is a blight and a barrier for the local community and also it means that people drive through the town rather than actually stopping and visiting because they don't know what's available because they're just driving through in a, a dual carriageway and so it's coming out of cu- lots of community consultation and it's been the community who have said look we don't we don't want this anymore and the council has been successful in, in getting funding from the Scottish government's Places for Everyone programme. And they're now going to reduce the dual carriageway to a single lane and create a proper separated walking and cycling route and really improve the, the walking environment and create a lovely aspect down to the seafront. Kerry, I'm going to stay with you for a minute because you deal with the psychological aspects of, of making things work and people are being able to navigate their cities. How do you actually um, persuade a human being to abandon a car and start to walk and get on a bike instead? How have you gone about it in the past? I think it's about tapping into where they think the benefits might be. The recent UK government's gear change policy identifies a number of different benefits and outcomes that they're looking for. So some of those are around climate change, some are are congestion, road safety, inequality and health obviously is a big one. So it's really trying to tap into what's important to people. For some people, it will be the health benefits. For others, it's about access to employment. It's about access to education. For others, it's about safety. So really trying to develop messages that will really appeal to those people. Uh, Samantha, let's bring in this climate change agenda that the government's been announcing. It has a 10-point plan. Point five is about active travel. What has that done or, or what will that do to spur cities into activity? Yeah, the 10-point plan for a, a green industrial revolution, they're looking to you know improve the air we breathe and increase both mental and physical health while reducing emissions and you know they have an aim to create over a thousand miles of safe and direct cycling and walking networks delivered by 2025 so you know it will spur the local authorities into delivering these schemes for the people you know you can get far more cyclists along a cycle lane which is is narrower than a traffic lane Blackfriars Bridge is a, a perfect example of that where they put a segregated bicycle track in and it increased travel by 55%. Let's hear now from Lucinda Elliott. She's a journalist based in Spain and South America and in Barcelona they've launched an ambitious plan called Superblock to reclaim the city's streets from cars and to cut down pollution with the creation of green spaces and public squares. A key reason Spain is looking to banish the car is congestion. Barcelona is perhaps overlooked because of its coastline as a place that suffers from everyone being hemmed in, but it is one of Europe's most densely populated cities with 16,000 people per square kilometre. For context, London has well under half that, at around 5,000. Few parks and places to while away an afternoon mean authorities have put the work in ahead of urban plans. A study carried out by the city's Institute for Global Health Traffic suggested that schemes like this could help prevent early deaths brought on by air pollution and found that the average life expectancy of residents could also rise by 200 days, from the benefits brought on by less noise pollution and better air quality. In the Spanish capital, Madrid, new measures have been introduced to establish pedestrianised avenues. Public space, however, is already fairly well distributed in Madrid. Wider pavements, round plazas and leafy parks, plus an agreeable climate and wide-reaching metro network, has meant there have been fewer campaigns to cut out cars entirely. Depending how successful the superblock scheme is, 
Councils outside Barcelona may look at how to rethink downtown areas. That was Lucinda Elliott, a journalist based in Spain and South America, telling us how the Spanish are going about things. Richard, when you're working with local authorities and communities, how willing are people to jump on board with a plan which will, of course, affect their lives? There's a devolution question across all of this. So much as it is desirable to do this in a uh, an integrated way, just as we're hearing about the Barcelona Superblock and so on, uh, actually the reality is that most local or regional authorities across the country, with the partial exception of Scotland and Wales as uh, as national ones, they just don't have the powers to do a lot of things that actually would be uh, quite desirable that they did have the powers to do. So there is a constraint there for sure. But I think there are also examples where those braver moves have, have been done and they've been proven to work. Take one example, the uh, Waltham Forest Mini Holland scheme in London. Traffic levels have gone down to uh, lower than they were before in the surrounding area. It's worked and and delivered lots of value, air quality improvements, etc. Richard, you mentioned there that London is at the centre of many of these changes. Well, Steve McNamara is the General Secretary of the London Taxi Drivers Association and he argues that they will be some of the worst hit by these changes. The LTDA and the taxi industry in London fully recognise that we need to move to a different way of working. We need to allow more people to walk and cycle. We need greater mobility and greater access for people to move around. The reality is though that many of these schemes that have been introduced, the extended cycleways, the road restrictions, the road closures, having such a massive impact on London's business. In fact, they're destroying many of London's businesses. London's business relies on lifeblood. The blood's not moving. London's going to have a coronary. We need to work together to implement these schemes, but to keep London moving, and to keep London business moving. Kerry, listening to that, there's a big balance to strike, isn't there? That you, you have to make cities green, you have to make things active, but you have economic security to think of. And actually, we're all now reassessing the whole purpose of cities and what buildings are for, aren't we? Absolutely, and totally understand the the point of view of the, the taxi drivers. They have their livelihoods, and this comes back to making sure that um, there is effective consultation and engagement when schemes are being developed to make sure that everyone's points of views are, are heard. But I think it's important also to engage closely with businesses to to help them to understand that just because cars are not able to travel around a city, it's not necessarily going to impact on their business. It might just be different types of customers that are coming. They might come at different times of the day. And actually, there have been some studies that showed that people walking and cycling do actually spend more money. So... I think while it's an important aspect to take account of, there are many sides to that argument. Tell me what you're doing in Aberdeen with Arcadis. So in Aberdeen, we've developed an electric vehicle framework and, and I guess that fits in with what we were just discussing around taxis because taxis are part of the solution to that framework. If we can have more electric vehicles in our cities, then that's going to help with air pollution and noise as well. And so we've been developing a framework that looks at what the baseline is for electric vehicles in the city and uh, forecasting what that will be uh, up to sort of around about 2030. And and as part of that process, we've consulted with a number of different organisations, including taxis, and also um, with members of the public. So the idea is that the framework is there. It's been developed by the Aberdeen City Council. However, it's not 
solely the role of the City Council to implement the framework. Lots of organisations have their part to play in introducing electric vehicle charging infrastructure. Sam, tell me about the the accusation sometimes that urbanists design for themselves and they don't take into consideration the needs of people who can't perhaps walk or cycle as much as they like. I mean, you hear from uh, the London Taxi Drivers Association who clearly object to everybody getting out of the car, but you've got to think of people who have less mobility, such as older people, um, people with children, people who don't look and sound and can't navigate a city in quite the same way as an urbanist. There's actually been recent studies that say if you provide Um, safe, protected cycle facilities, uh, improved walking facilities, you do actually get an increase in uh, the older population um, taking part in in these active travel modes. To me, this goes to a a wider point about the role of cars in cities. And I think um, some of the debate and efforts haven't been helped actually by uh, being entirely anti-car, anti-van, anti-motorised traffic, full stop. Because partly that's just a long way from where we are as a country. Um, So there's a sort of reality check problem with that. Um, But also there are some genuine needs for some of that traffic that aren't just going to uh, evaporate. And so we need to think about how to, you know, how to supply those. Um, I think shared cars are a classic of this. Uh, There are journeys um, that people need to make uh, by cars if they're to fulfil them. Um, That's not all the journeys that as a nation we're currently using cars for, Uh, not at all. So we need to damp down on the amount of car travel very much so if we're to have a hope of hitting 2050 net zero, etc. Let's finish with a very brief word once again from Mark Schenk from Arcadis in the Netherlands. The senior mobility expert returns to the overall benefits of bringing active travel to our cities. The bike alone doesn't replace the private automobile and neither does public transit. But when you combine the two, that's when the magic happens. Mark Schenk from Arcadis in the Netherlands. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. My thanks to Kerry Stewart and Samantha Thurwell from Arcadis UK and to Richard Dilks, Chief Executive of Como UK. And thank you very much for joining us. If you enjoyed that, then make sure you subscribe. You'll find fresh podcasts popping up regularly at arcadis.com UK, where there'll be lots of extras too, all to do with the future of our cities, our communities and their recovery. And you can find the report, our shared recovery plan, on the Arcadis UK website. You've been with Long Story Short, the Future Cities podcast from Arcadis UK. I'm Emma Nelson. Goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.